The following sermon was preached on June 20th, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Organizing pastor Dr. Joseph A. Piper Jr. preached this sermon entitled Beware False Teachers on 1 Timothy 6, 3-5. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. 1 Timothy 6, 3-5. Beware false teachers. For almost 200 years, the uh, police have been putting up wanted posters of notorious criminals uh, posted in the post offices, in the journal stores, for the purpose of identifying these people, but also warning others about them. Perhaps somebody's teased you about they saw your picture in, in the post office. Today, beyond posters, we have uh, newspaper pictures, we have pictures on the television, on the internet, and it's a very effective way uh, to uh, help arrest people as well as to protect us against those people. In the text before us this morning, the Apostle Paul is posting a warning, a wanted poster, a, a warning poster, not against just any kind of criminal, but against false teachers. It is a warning that we must well heed. In verse 3, the apostle now turns from uh, instructing um, Timothy with respect to the affairs of the church, um, which he began in chapter 5, verse 1, to remarks that are particularly addressed to Timothy himself. And to the rest of this letter focuses on Timothy, although because he's there as the evangelist, the, the one to structure the church, everything that he says is profitable for us for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. The very first issue then that Paul will address with Timothy is this matter of uh, false teachers, that uh, the Spirit here would have you and me to recognize uh, uh, their doctrine, their character, and the consequences of their character that we'll know how to respond, that we will recognize their doctrine their character and the consequences of their character so that we'll know how to respond. And those are the four things that we're going to consider. We're going to look at the, the nature and doctrine of the false teachers, the character of the false teachers, the consequence of their teaching, and then how are we as a church to respond to false teachers. Now, the grammar here is very interesting. Uh, you children know what a conditional sentence is. So your mom says, if you will clean your room, then we'll go get ice cream. There's an if and a then. And that's what Paul, how Paul structures his instruction here with an if and a then. And so we have the, um, the if statement. Uh, the antecedent is what it's called grammatically, and an apodosis. Now the antecedent or if statement is in verse 4. And this is where he describes to us the nature, the doctrine of the false teachers. If anyone... There's the if, advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to godliness. There's a comma, and there's the then statement. But it's in this first verse 4, this if statement, that Paul describes to us both the nature and uh, something of the doctrine of the false teachers. He, he says that these are people who advocate a different doctrine. Now, the word different doctrine is actually our word heterodox. 
And it is a doctrine that's opposite then from the doctrine that's been taught by the apostles. And he goes on to say that. So they're teaching a contrary uh, to uh, apostolic doctrine because it does not agree with sound words. Sound words is a phrase or sound doctrine, sound teaching that Paul uses here throughout uh, these pastoral epistles to uh, talk about the, um, the nature of the Word of God that is wholesome. It's sound. It's good. It stands against all that is error, all that is wrong, all that is evil. And so on one side is heterodoxy. What would be the other word? On the side is orthodoxy, right teaching over against contrary or false teaching. And the best way then ever to understand error is to hold it up against the plumb line, the standard of the revealed word of God. And that's one of the advantages that God gives us in being a confessional church. We don't say that everything in our confession and catechism is without error, but it gives us a standard. We believe that this is the best exposition of Scripture in our age. And so we're able to examine every teaching, every teacher against the standard of orthodoxy. So the false teaching is measured by good, sound, wholesome teaching. Now Paul tells us two things, because uh, now he focuses really on, on the standard, two things about uh, healthy doctrine, orthodoxy, its source and its purpose. You see, the source of orthodoxy here is that it is of the Lord Jesus Christ. does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the sound words are words as if they were coming from the Savior. You'll notice that he uses all three of the glorious names and titles of our Savior. He refers to him as Lord. He is Jehovah, uh, the second person of the Godhead. He is Jesus, thus he's God incarnate. You'll call his name Emmanuel, God with us, Jehovah saves. And he is the Christ, which means he's the anointed prophet, priest, and king. And all of this authority, as the anointed prophet, priest, and king, this divine man has expressed to us his will. He does so particularly in his office of prophet. And our catechism answers the question, how doth Christ execute the office of a prophet? Christ executeth the office of a prophet and is revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. So when Paul says that uh, the good words, sound words, orthodoxy are from the Lord Jesus Christ, he's simply reminding us that behind everything we have in our Bible stands the prophetic work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the true certain final word of the true perfect triune God. In Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, God, after he spoke long ago, and we actually know that was God the Son, after he spoke long ago uh, to our fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. Here is the Messianic Son through whom God has spoken. And that's the final word for that Son then, the Son of God, speaks to us through his apostles, whom he anointed and by His Spirit inspired to complete the canon of Scripture. So when he says that sound doctrine is of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's simply pointing to our Bibles in their completed form being the source, the only source of sound doctrine. The, the confession can be a measurement 
But the only source of sound doctrine uh, is the Bible. And when Paul says this, you realize he's also implying something about himself. Because he's talking about the sound words that he has communicated. And he's, he's expressing here that he and the other apostles, when they wrote these letters, uh, wrote them uh, aware of and confident that they were writing Scripture. They weren't surprised by what happened. No, they wrote with a conviction, with an authority, that what they write were the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the source of our Bibles. And when you come to read your Bible, always keep in mind that God is speaking to you now. The triune God through the Savior, by the Holy Spirit. In fact, when we read in, in 2 Timothy, all Scripture is inspired as God breathed, as if He's right there opening His mouth and speaking to you. And so you come to the Word in private reading, family reading, and particularly in worship to commune with the triune God. That's the source of Scripture, of doctrine. And then, but now we see as well, what is the purpose of doctrine? And that is, with the doctrine conforming to godliness. Back in chapter 1, uh, verses 4 and 5, as Paul first contrasts, um, the false teachers with true teachers. Uh, he says in the end of verse 4, in contrasting the, the false teachers, that um, their speculation does not further the administration of God, which is by faith. And then he describes that. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. That's what he means here when he says uh, that it does not its doctrine does not conform to godliness. Godliness, then, is to be the goal, the aim. Uh, love of God, love of our neighbor, if you remember that section we dealt with it, it comes from a pure heart that's been born again by the Holy Spirit, a good conscience that lives confidently by the indwelling Spirit according to Scripture, and sincere and non-hypocritical faith. That's the goal of all teaching. It's never knowledge as an end in itself. Paul says that puffs up makes us proud and arrogant. No, the goal is that we might know the triune God, we might love Him, and long to worship and serve Him and love one another, as well as our neighbor. So that all right doctrine produces godliness. Love for God, love for the neighbor. And that's always going to be a measure. It should be a measure for you and me. It's easy for us as Reformed people to um, lose our focus and stop simply with the great truths that we believe and love. But why? Why has God revealed those truths to us? That our hearts will be trained to serve and to love Him. And so Paul lays out for us in the first place the, the nature, um, the doctrine of the false teachers. Now, in the second place, he, he goes on here, uh, to deal uh, with their character. This will be the, um, the apotheosis now, the then part of his uh, conditional sentence in verse 4. Such a teacher is conceited and understands nothing, but has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words. And the end of verse 5, he says of these teachers that there's constant friction between men of depraved mind, deprived of truth. Depraved minds, deprived of truth. 
Well, he first describes their character as those who are proud. This word conceited actually comes from a Greek word that means blind, and it's used often for the person because he is so proud, he is blind to all truth. He is self-centered. He is puffed up, and he makes himself the center of the universe. And the grammatical form that Paul uses here is referring to these people by a stated character. This is the established character of the false teacher. He's a puffed up, blind person who listens to no one. He's a rationalist. His mind, he's appointed as the arbiter and the standard of everything that he would believe and he would do. Now, he tells us uh, about him because of his pride that he is both ignorant and he is obsessed. He's ignorant, says the apostle. He understands nothing. Now, he's all caught up in this false teaching. Uh, Paul has described it here in already a couple of places in, um, in the letter. This uh, speculation about uh, genealogies, where you read a long genealogy. My wife and I just finished those in Chronicles, and you know, one name after another. Many of them we don't know. It's nice to know that God knows them. Uh, but they would make up stories about these people, and that's what they did. That's how they taught the Bible. And so then they would argue about their view over against someone else's view. And then we saw in chapter 4, they also were committed to kind of a Jewish asceticism and the legalism about food and marriage and other things. And um, they are doing this, Paul says, absolutely ignorant. Ignorant. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 7, he said of them, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say, they do not understand the law, nor the things which they affirm. They don't understand the law. They don't even understand the words that they're using. They're mimicking, they're copying, they're arguing. They've lost themselves in the mumbo-jumbo of their false teaching, and so that they are blind in their pride, and thus they are ignorant. And false teachers are ignorant. You know, we all have error in our thinking. Until we get to heaven, we're going to be fallible. And that means we're going to have errors. Um, and that's part of our sanctification. But there's a difference in the era of fallibility and the era of pride. Sometimes, even as orthodox people, we can develop errors in our thinking because of prejudice. Prejudice is another form of pride. And that we've put up walls that are impenetrable. Uh, we don't want any light of truth to come through those walls and thus we find ourselves then in our error, and that is a very uh, unhealthy place to be. Uh, and as you, as you search the Scriptures, you're to do so with a, a broken heart. Think of what Paul said, or God says through Isaiah in 66, 2, But unto this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. If you want to profit from the Word of God, my friend, this must always be your attitude. You take up the Bible to read it. Have this attitude, because look at the promises that's attached to it. God says that He will look to the one who's humble and, and brokenhearted and, and trembles at the Word of God. And so we say, speak, Lord. Your servant listens. Remove my blinders. 
Make me open. Teach me, Lord, the truth. Uh, and always be humble before the word of God in this manner. Because uh, the pride then will make us ignorant. The second thing he says about these proud false teachers is that they are obsessed. The New American Standard says they have a morbid interest in these controversial questions and disputes about words. Now, we've heard a lot about morbidities lately with respect to COVID, and that's illnesses, so serious illnesses that people have. And actually, the, the word translated morbid interest uh, means to literally to be sick about something. And it's used then for for this morbidity, this obsession that these people had that was actually out of sickness and causing sickness. Perhaps you've, you know that time you had a stomach virus and you, you were hungry for things. And you knew full well that if you went and ate them, you'd be worse, but you went and ate them because you were hungry for them. That's the idea here. They're hungry for this poison. I just described it for you, these controversial questions, these worrying about uh, words and uh, getting into all these fights in the church over words and over their asceticism. It was death-dealing, but it, it had gripped them. It's all they could think about. Was there error? How to promote their cause? How to promote their error? Now, that's intensified by those two words he uses in the end of verse 5, that they were both depraved and deprived of truth. They had a depraved, corrupt nature. See, at the end of the day, a true heretic is unconverted. Now, I'm not talking about the person who has error, and it's sincere error. Uh, John Gerson used to distinguish between the person who says, I read the Bible, I don't see that it teaches election. That person can be born again. I don't care what the Bible says, I'll not believe in election. That is a rebellious and unregenerate heart. And so it's the heart of the heretic, the heart of the teacher of error, that is indeed given over to depravity and corruption. And that is the great pit that spews out this noxious stream uh, of death and destruction. And then uh, deprived of truth, we just saw their ignorance. Uh, and with this attitude, they'll never come to truth, you see. You can talk to them till you're blue in the face. They're not going to change because they have, by the Spirit of God, manifested their corruption. And they are um, deprived of truth itself. You see, what happens then is that, yes, we all could have this pride in, in our grasp of truth. But it's when the Spirit is shining light and suddenly we harden ourselves. This is what happens. You know, a person's not normally uh, born with all this error. Uh, they develop it. Uh, they develop it out of pride. They develop it out of wanting to be somebody. Um, and as they, uh, as they do that, they harden themselves against truth and they get obsessed with their error until it actually defines them. It, uh, it marks them. Now, you can't deal with such a person. This is where what Solomon says, do not answer a fool according to his folly. Answer a fool according to his folly. You must never go down to their level and think that you're just going to get into the word games with them. It always will fail. You've had Jehovah's Witnesses in your home. You know what I'm talking about. But you answer them according to their folly by continually drawing them back to the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth of the word 
of God. Because they are simply going to babble on and on and on, disputing. They're like the men of Athens who sit around all the time talking about that which is worthless. This is what happens. And as I've unfortunately had to deal with different people teaching different errors, not simply contending over uh, the typical errors, but federal vision and, and, and worship. And like, what you eventually find are people that um, are not reasonable because they have become obsessed, obsessed with the sickness of their error and their pride. Well, this false doctrine from these teachers then has certain consequences. And Paul lays out five things for us. Now he does so, uh, keep in mind what our Savior says in uh, Matthew chapter 7 uh, with respect to the false teachers. Verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravening wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles. Isn't that right, kids? Can you go out to a, a thorn bush and pick a grape? Um, get a fig off of a rose bush? No. So every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. That's what Paul goes on to show us now. What's the consequence in the lives of these men? What's the consequence of their teaching? This is how you know that they're false teachers. And he lists here five things. In the middle of verse 4, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction. Well, first begins with envy. Envy is worse than jealousy. Envy is deadly. Envy is that you are so eaten up with jealousy that you want nothing but to see the other person abased or, or even destroyed or, or removed from the scene because you are the end-all and the do-all. Anything that would uh, compete with your preeminence, your hegemony, your, your popularity, uh, your finances, as we'll see, anything that will compete with that, um, you want to destroy. So immediately you see there's, there's not a quest for truth. There's a self-seeking and envy that's constantly putting down others. Now, envy always produces strife. The, the Bible's very clear about that, the second thing. So what happens is if a person eats up with envy, he's sowing seeds of strife, of disagreement, and of, of constant uh, arguing uh, in the midst of the people of God. And with that strife uh, comes uh, slander. It's called here abusive language. It's actually the Greek word for blasphemy. When it's used of God, it means blasphemy. When it's used of men speaking against men, it, has, it means slander and, and abusive speech. And this is how that strife breaks forward. I'm envious of you. I'm creating strife in the body of Christ, and I will slander you. I will put you down. Envy always seeks to destroy others. And the, the safest way to do it is not to kill them uh, with a gun, but to kill them with words. And so the false teachers, eaten up with envy, produce strife and slander. Uh, those who would 
disagreed uh, with them. And then evil suspicions. You see, a false teacher who's self-centered and motivated does nothing out of pure motives. Now, perhaps you've known people like this, and they have no pure motives. Uh, because uh, What I mean is they don't respect your motives. They're always suspicious. You say something kind, do something good to them, they immediately are paranoid. They got, they got their arms up against you. Why? Because that's how, who they are. They've done nothing out of a, of a pure motive for God's glory or, or, or your well-being. And so they're suspicious of every good thing anybody would try to do toward them. And they're always looking around. Uh, now, who's trying to undermine me? Who wants, who wants my place? Just like dictators and, and tin pot generals and um, African and South American countries are constantly worried about who is going to replace them, living in constant fear. Well, that happens theologically, you see. And then all of that manifests itself in what he calls a constant um, um, friction between men of depraved mind and deprived spirit. It's like a pot of boiling water. This constantly bubbling, but out of that bubbling comes these noxious fumes and poison and all of these things uh, constantly stirring up then the strife and the friction in the body of Christ. This is what false teaching does. And you see it any place you look at it, that it's going to produce uh, bad fruit. And immediately all the warning signs go off and the pictures are posted on the wall uh, to beware. But you know, you don't have to be a false teacher for your teaching to produce these characteristics. We all have to be careful that we are not so caught up in our own agendas for truth that we teach in such a way that produces these things. That's the other uh, kind of a side doctrine here that I would bring to your attention, and that is uh, we can teach with the wisdom of the world and produce the same things. Teach truth. You can teach truth. Remember, Paul, uh, Jesus said you can know a false teacher, a false prophet, and so he might be teaching truth but he's a false prophet because of how he's teaching truth. James gives us the contrast in chapter 3 uh, about wisdom in verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior and deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, demonic, natural. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure. Purity is the source of it all in the Holy Spirit. Then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The peacemaker sows truth in righteousness, and it produces peace, produces godliness in the midst of the congregation. And so we must be careful always as the congregation. We love truth, but we must always hold the truth in humility. We must realize that, yes, our doctrines are far superior as we have them in our standards, but it's only God's grace that opened our eyes to them. We didn't invent them, and we don't contend 
for them then with worldly wisdom, but with the gentleness of heavenly wisdom. Now, I have a fourth thing here, and you look at the text, and if you have the New American Standard or the ESV, and you're wondering uh, where I get it and where I'm going, and that is, um, how do we respond to the false teacher? And if you've got the New King James or the King James, they have an added phrase, and that is, from such withdraw yourself. From such withdraw yourself. Now, there are different textual families, particularly in the New Testament. And this is because long, you know, the printing press was not invented until the 1450s. And so everything was being hand copied. Oftentimes hand copied by people who didn't even know Greek or Hebrew. <laughs> they just were copying the letters. And then some scribe would have written something in the margin, a bit of a commentary, and the next guy that copies that incorporates that into it. And so there are these different families of manuscripts, and the New American, uh, the, the ESV and New American Standard are based on one particular, and it's called the critical text, whereas the King James, New King James, are based on the majority text and the received text. At the end of the day, neither text teaches error. There's not one thing in either text that is contrary to Scripture. And that's the first thing to be aware of. Second thing is that probably every 999 words out of 1,000 that we have in our, our Greek and Hebrew and our English Bibles uh, is, is, is the original. And you can understand why God didn't leave us the original. What did the children of Israel do with the, uh, the brass serpent? You know, they turned it into an idol. Can you imagine if, if Rome had the original scriptures? What it would be like? I mean, I already claim to have everything else, crosses and milks and, and everything else. But um, so... God did not preserve the original, what we call them, autographs. But we still believe that everything that is preserved is infallible. Everything that our Bibles teaches is without error with respect to faith, practice, geography, history, whatever you want. I prefer, although I use the New American Standard because I like the literal translation, I don't like the New King James for that reason, I prefer the text behind the New King James. So periodically I will do something like this, and that is simply add now what we have there, and that's this uh, final warning the apostle gives to Timothy, and through Timothy the church, withdraw, uh, withdraw yourself from such. That's very consistent with what Paul has been teaching and will teach in the pastoral epistle. So we already saw in chapter 1, verse 20, Paul himself said, I've excommunicated, I've given over to Satan these false teachers. In 2 Timothy 3.5, he speaks of those who have a form of godliness but deny the power. From such people turn away. And in the lengthy section in Titus 3.9-11, avoid foolish disputes. The same problem. Genealogies, contentions, strivings about the law. Uh, you see, Crete had the same problem they had in Ephesus. For they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped depraved and deprived, self-condemned, sinning and being self-condemned. Now, this factious man is a heretic. He's one that's teaching false doctrine. So what Paul says here is exactly what he says throughout these epistles, and that is you can have nothing to do with them. This begins with the church, and here we have what Paul's already alluded to, and that is excommunication. 
The church goes through the steps. If it's a public teaching, it will begin publicly. If it's private, it begins with the steps of Matthew 18. But eventually, the, the false teacher teachers come before the session of the church or the presbytery, and they're examined according to their teachings. If their teaching is contrary to Scripture, particularly of a serious um, soul-damning error, they're going to be excommunicated. Notice the parallel in Deuteronomy 13. Any capital offense in the Old Testament that demanded the death penalty is demands excommunication in the New Testament. That's how we, in the church, deal with serious sin. And so when he says, withdraw yourself in such a way, he's saying you must put them out of the church. They must not remain part of the body of Christ, given over to Satan, that they might repent. And at the end of the day, within the church, that is the role. It's not my role or your role individually. It's going to be the role of the church, the role of the session, the role of the presbytery. But we also know that we know people with whom we're not connected, particularly uh, denominationally or congregationally. And we also know others that uh, uh, they're full-blown heretics, health, wealth, and prosperity people, or um, Mormons, or Jehovah's Witnesses, and whatever. Now, this warning also speaks to us individually. Withdraw yourself from such people. Do not get embroiled with them. Now, it's not that we avoid them. We'll try to speak the truth into their lives. I don't think it's wrong to, to have a Jehovah's Witness come into your home and, and you try to show them from Scripture. Uh, that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the only Savior of sinners. But you can't get into the mud with them, like a couple of women mud wrestling. No, you, you've got to avoid their disputatious spirit. Uh, and you, second, you don't have intimate fellowship with full-blown obnoxious errorists. It's not that we don't have friends who are unconverted. We should. And we can have some intimate friendships with these people if they're not promoting a lifestyle that's contrary to Scripture. But these errorists, uh, we don't ever allow ourselves or our families to be in an intimate connection uh, with them. Paul says, um, withdraw yourself. That must be the church's response. Why is the warning poster put up then? So that we as individuals recognize what's going on around us. So the church, though, church will be faithful. Vigilant. That's why church discipline is one of the marks of the church. The gospel is the primary mark, but the gospel cannot be protected without church discipline. And that's what Paul is showing us here. So we learn about the nature of the doctrine of the false teachers, their character, the consequences, and how we ought to respond. We must remain vigilant for the truth. But we also must as I've already hinted at, take this warning to ourselves. Not only can we become proud in our approach to Scripture, we can become disputatious. Now we're called on, particularly in the day in which we live, to contend for the truth. And, and that's what Jude says to his writers, that we, we must contend for the truth. But we never become contentious when we contend for the truth. We must not let the contention the disputation become the end in itself. You see, it must be the glory of God and, and the soul of this person uh, with whom we're speaking. And I'm afraid that there, there are many Orthodox Christians today that have fallen in love with disputation. I can think of people in their tweets. I can think of a man. I can think of a woman. They're constantly tweeting um, 
confrontational things, controversial things. They, they're looking uh, for dispute. We can't do that, you see. Now, I think when we contend for the faith, it can be a bit like Bilbo's ring, worn in innocence and for good reasons, until it begins to take on a power of its own. We can begin to dispute. And believe me, I've done it. I know I have to for good reasons. But we must be careful that somewhere along the way, disputation doesn't become the end in itself. This brings us back to Christ. We must constantly look to Christ and to Him alone. Yes, for our salvation, for in Him alone is salvation. And if you had such a heart that's described here, then you must flee to Christ alone. But for us as Christians, we must flee to Christ who by His Spirit will continue to make us humble. He'll protect us from error. He'll cause us to grow in gentleness and love as well as in holiness. And then when we dispute, we'll dispute in dependence upon Christ, in His power, uh, because only Christ can give the victory. He'll give it to us in our own lives. He'll give it to His church as we seek Him. Let us stand for prayer. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.